You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is my brother, TJ2, the deuce. Um, I was ill-prepared. Wait, hang on. Hey, guys. Are you drinking out of a red solo cup? <laughs> I'm drinking out of a giant QT cup. Actually. Are you? Are you yeah. now? Are you now playing beer pong, and you're just trying to shoot it in? No. As soon as we finish up, I'm gonna have to go to a ball game, and I probably don't need to go there and stand near high school kids reeking of beer. So I'm just drinking tea. Why everybody else does? It's the yeah. South. It's- well, there is that. <laughs> and our storyteller for the day, Mister Will the Thrill. And I helped. Greetings and salutations, everybody. After the week you've had, I feel like you should have had a drink. But I'm drinking coffee right now because after the week I've had, I just need energy to Well, if to you stay insist. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you're going to twist we... my arm, said Will. <laughs> I believe I will have a beverage <laughs> with dinner while I cook dinner or both. We'll see how the evening goes. Well, this has been a really interesting week. I found out that like three celebrities passed away in a day. Like not that they didn't pass away in a day. I found out that they all died in a single day, which none of them were singers. But well... One of them was on Broadway in Carrie, I want to say, on Broadway in the 80s, but that show bombed really hard. That was an adventure, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I could do an entire series on just like the failed shows on Broadway, but even back then they were just trying to like replicate IP. So we lost Richard Roundtree, Shaft, we lost Suzanne Somers, and we lost Piper Laurie. That's our three. That's our three. So sucks, but... On the other hand, and, well, there is one musical tie-in, if I may. Oh yes, go for it. Of course. If you'll think back, LD, when I was a 16-year-old disc jockey on WGCD in Chester, South Carolina. <laughs> WGCD. WGCD. I had an opening for myself that was that where I played the theme from Chester. Who is the man that would risk his neck for his brother, man? And then badly over that, I would just go, Travis. <laughs> yeah, you didn't exactly. You never really learned how to mix, did you, T? <laughs> you just, I mean, I did a little like, later, and then like, everything went digital, so now I'm just t- totally helpless. And <laughs> the best part was you did a song called Big Old Yard Sale, and you put it to the, t- to the tune of Pretty Woman, but like a karaoke track, you just sang louder than Roy Orbison. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what we did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but... This has been an interesting week because I've decided that I was going to take up masonry. So I did that. You're doing well on it too. Yeah. I built a brick wall and I fixed our stairs. So I'm pretty proud of myself. All righty. And and I think we might. Point to avoid said wall. (laughs) I think we might have adopted. Not going to lean against it. (laughs) I I think we might have adopted three cats too. I'm not quite sure. I think if you feed it once, it's now yours. So we have three new cats live outside. Their names are Sydney, Kirby, and Sam. All after characters from the Scream franchise. So that's been my week. How was yours? Good? Yeah. All right. So any other business on the table? Just that about Dwayne Ullman. Okay, perfect. All right. So I think right now is a perfect time for our first sponsor break. And then when we come back, I will hand the reins over to Mr. William Hickey for the third time. Hold on. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back. What a sponsor. All right. Yeah. All right. So, Mr. Will, again, I bow to your prowess, service, writing, whatever. It's tell your story. Go ahead. You're not bowing to me. You're bowing to the great Dwayne. So I will, I will accept. I um, yield my time to the speaker from New Jersey. Were you? Wait, was that supposed to be a Kennedy? Kennedy-esque. Uh, roughly, yeah. Uh, okay. You tried. It was, it was cute. You tried. We, we era. Just era. <laughs> Era, we, era. we want to go to the moon and do that other thing not because it is easy but because it is hard what is the other thing i did What's not arrive with pants and i'm not leaving with pants but, Isn't the other i'm thing? sorry significant of nothing and not related to anything we're actually talking about did you ever see when they were um how congress was they were honoring back in the day sammy sos and mark mcguire okay <laughs> i do remember that and 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 kennedy says mac mcguire and Sammy Souser. Wow. Mac McGuire and Sammy Souser. Huh. That's Excellent. amazing. That sounds fun. Simply stunning. <laughs> How do you not do the basic, like, I mean, you know what, though? You know, after doing this podcast for almost four years or five years, I can't remember. You, I'm not going to chide not knowing how to pronounce someone's name. <laughs> we've butchered our fair share. We, we've, we've, we've killed several names so uh i'm gonna let it slide <laughs> so what are we talking about this week mr will well, speaking of slide it's gonna be Dwayne allman's guitar playing yeah see what I hey wow. um, I see this is gonna be there. fun guys we're actually gonna do some cover songs here songs that you may know or you may not have known Dwayne was part of but we are establishing probably the big turning point in his career where Dwayne becomes a studio guy at the great muscle shoals so a lot of names you're gonna know a lot of songs you're gonna know this is gonna be a fun one so, I guess, you know, real quick, Will, I guess we actually had a tiny bit of relevant Dwayne Allman news this week. And that is? That Rolling Stone put out their top 250 guitarists ever. That, is, that, that seems a trifle yeah. excessive. And it was it was a trifle excessive, and it was a gigantic grab bag of bullshit. But they had Dwayne at number 10, I think. 
I think 10 is the lowest he's ever charted. But if you look at the scale of, again, top 100 versus top 50, 10 is about where he lands. I, would, I mean, I would say, yeah. um, I would say, though, it would seem odd to me that a person who's been dead for, you know, 50 years would drop from your last ranking and be passed by other people who have been dead for a very long time. <laughs> it's all a bunch of dead guys to get to the top seem, 10. That seems strange to me. Like, what changed? Just, just curious. I do think this is the first time I've seen him lower than like three, though. He's normally yeah. like top five. Well, it's, with it's a, a garbage list, yeah. but you yeah. know, yeah. it's somebody's opinion, whatever, but still. Yeah. Well, we're going to focus on what made Dwayne famous. And for those of you who don't know Muscle Shoals, it is in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. It's just in the middle of nowhere. Actually, LD, it's funny because it's about 30, 35 minutes from Rogersville, where a good friend of ours lives. Wait, where's Rogersville? Rogersville, Alabama. Oh, Jay. Yeah. Yeah, Jay. I love Jay. Jay's a good boy. He is. So for those of you who don't know, it is in the middle of nowhere. And how you wind up there is Wait a second. A I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say, I'm sorry, Jay. I don't know why I said you were a good boy like you were a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> it was he's, funny. He's a good boy. Who's a good boy? Jay's oh, a good boy. boy. <laughs> I'm sorry, right. Jay. I mean, the amount of people that have gone through there is endless. But I think one of the most prominent is, of course, the folks that recorded Do A Diddy, and they were at Muscle Show Studio, Man for Man's Rock Band. Tom, will you do the honors? Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Man for Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. I was going to say, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tom McGinnis, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Mann's reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. We it's are, like Tom. He, it's like he was here. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, okay, so now, here we are. So the path for the Almonds has been a little winding, obviously starting in Tennessee, going to Florida, winding their way. You're going to see how they finally get to the West Coast, as we discussed, and how there's going to be a rift in the band. And by the end of this, you're going to wonder, how the heck did the Elman Brothers ever come together? Well, let's focus on that. We've got Dwayne sort of leading the ship. Greg is just kind of following along. And then we're going to get some record companies involved, folks. And we all know how that goes. Dwayne describes his band, The Hourglass, which we mentioned in the last episode, as being, quote, a good damn bunch of misled cats. Here's well, the thing. If they had just spelled their names O-U-R, mm -hmm. Hourglass, that might have, I might have let it slide. But it's legitimately... <sighs> H-O-U-R, and I just, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't. Yeah, but despite this, the band being a bit nomadic, the roots are starting to form, and believe it or not, you've already met most of the players in the Allman Brothers core band. The Hourglass would obviously take some gigs close to where the Almonds grew up in Daytona Beach, and it was one of the few places they could actually play out without repercussion from the record label. Because as we mentioned, the record label said, you guys can't play out in LA anymore, which just killed their, you know, their drive to do anything. So they started kind of picking up gigs on the road wherever they could. Well, they happened to play in Daytona Beach at one of the places they would normally visit, and they caught the ear of a young lady named Linda working as a waitress. Here's this band and says, hey, these guys are pretty good. I need to go home and tell my husband about them. Well, it's important to know that her last name was Oakley, and her husband was Raymond Barry Oakley. And so they headed out to see the Almond Joys performing live as the Almond Joys at this point, and Barry was just floored. And he remembers distinctly the night that he and Dwayne met, he introduced himself, and the two of them went into the wee hours at the bar just talking about their musical influences and whatnot. So for those who know Almond Brothers and where they're going, you know where this is going, but those you don't, take that name, Barry. File it away, it will come back later. But again, the Hourglass will be back on the road, and 
this time, you know, they met, like I mentioned, it would be a bit fortuitous, like a lot of things in Dwayne's life. And they were sort of looking for a deviation. So they actually split off from a tour from St. Louis, hooked on over to Alabama and decided we're going to record what we want to record at Muscle Shoals. So the Hourglass arrives in Alabama in March of 1968. The goal was to focus mostly on the cover songs they would do during their live shows, except for one. That song, folks, is Been Gone Too Long, which was another one composed entirely by Greg Ullman. They did a few other songs, mostly covers of some B.B. King tunes that they put together in a medley. They took How Blue Can You Get, Sweet Little Angel, My Own Fault, and sort of put them into one medley. And as we remember, Dwayne was a big fan of B.B. King growing up. This all happened, of course, at Fame Studios. And if you remember in our last episode, one of the members of The Escorts, which is one of the great band names we heard last it's week. It's not great. It's, it's not terrible. It's not great. Eddie Hinton actually split off and decided to become a session guy and had set up shop there at Muscle Shoals. In addition to Eddie being there, they also knew the engineer. His name was Jimmy Johnson. So he sort of had some ins there. And Eddie was already working as a studio guy. So this is where Dwayne kind of figured, huh, you know, that's that's an interesting thing. Again, file away for later. later. And it was really a group effort. They all produced this album together. And the goal was really two things. One, they wanted to cut some tunes that actually sounded like them. Because if you remember, they were working under Liberty Records with Dallas Smith, who basically said, record what I tell you to record, and turned them into a, quote, Motown band, end quote. Yeah, no, not not at all. So they wanted some freedom. They also wanted to make their point that this is what they could sound like. So in a way, it was a way to sort of undercut Dallas Smith. Again, go somewhere. He's not going to be there. Do some recordings. Bring it back. So what was their key mistake? Well, they brought the recordings back and played them for Dallas Smith. Of course, he says, this is crap. He's like, you guys can't do this. You know, you know, it's not it doesn't sound good. This is the direction you need to go, which makes Dwayne even angrier. And bear in mind, they are under contract with Liberty. Now, that didn't stop Dwayne from basically saying, you know, F you, I'm going to do what I want. But there was a piece of paper there and it prevented them from doing a lot of stuff. Like I said, playing clubs out in L.A. So they were basically scraping by on the same gigs they used to, you know, a year or two ago called the Chitlin Circuit in, in the South, basically scraping out whatever they could, getting job here, job there, really wasn't enough to keep them going. This is also when tensions were really high between the band members because, they were starting to just really dejected. They show up at these venues and people would just basically not know who they were because they were the Hourglass. They were the Almond Joys. And now they're coming back and they're like, you're who? Sorry. So they had some albums under their belt, but the name Dwayne Almond didn't have any weight whatsoever. In fact, it led to Dwayne getting very angry with some club owners. And in fact, the big breakout performance they had at Nashville's Briar Patch a few years earlier where they met John Loudermilk, Dwayne had a huge blow up with the guy and they were basically asked to never return to the Briar Patch. So check that one off the list. And this whole time, Greg believes that L.A. is the way to go. He firmly believes they're not going to make it in the South. They've got to get to L.A. That's where they're going to do it. So he does actually start some recordings with Dallas Smith. And one of them is one I'm going to play for you right now because it has a tie-in with a former series that we did. This is a cover done in an R&B style of Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E. This was released by the Hourglass in 1967, and you'll see that Greg is clearly the centerpiece. Let's take a listen. Oh, 
And we are back. Yeah, I mean, I liked it. It's very different. Yeah. But I liked I, it. I, I did not care for that. It's, well, you're a Tammy fan. It's like a little, yeah. they, well, the arrangement was a little busy to me. The subject matter doesn't lend itself necessarily to the treatment it just got. I also, <laughs> well, the, my I, only, I, my I'm only a comp- fan often of of singing the sad ones happy and the happy ones sad or whatever. But and maybe I just need to hear it a few more times. I'd never heard that one before, and and I, and I, I'm much more familiar with Tammy's version. And that did not sound like Greg. Did not sound like Greg Almond vocally at all. There are moments where it does, but yeah, it's, his voice isn't what we know. And the other thing, kind of can't hear Dwayne. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's there a, were the bells and the voice, you know, the, the you know the pianos and the bells or whatever that that chiming sound was, and all the background vocals and stuff. Like, I Dwayne got way lost in that mix to me. Yeah, it's one of the many things Dallas Smith was accused of is burying Dwayne. And to make matters worse, this one was actually billed as Greg Allman and the Hourglass. Oh. Yeah. Mm, getting into some Michael Jackson territory. I will it say, really is. I will say, I actually, I like, I liked it. I, I, I like the juxtaposition of, you know, like when Travis said, like, you know, making sad songs, happy songs. I like the arrangement. I do agree he got lost in the mix. Like, that. that is, but... Um, it, I can, I can almost see where someone would be like, mm, maybe that's a, a little bit of the early Motown, but definitely don't, don't push them in that direction. Cause that's not where they're going to excel. There, no, there was something about all those bells almost gave it like a Christmassy sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said it best. You said it's busy and to make matters worse, they build it as Greg Ullman and they even misspelled Greg's name. Wow. Yep. Okay. <laughs> This is going to be a theme for the, the brothers going forward. So clearly this is not at all what Dwayne had in mind. And Greg's just kind of like, well, this is what we got to do. So he had a dichotomy there. Now, while all this is going on, the drummer that they got along so well with in the last episode, Butch Trucks, actually started a new band. The name was the Tiffany System. Now that evolved, or perhaps devolved, into the 31st of February. Okay, that's not a real date. Exactly. It was kind of like the B sharps from The Simpsons. Like they brought it up and they're like, ah, and they're like, ah. so the 31st of February was touring around Daytona. And around this time, they actually ran into Dwayne and Greg, who are pretty pissed off at their label, not happy about anything. And Dwayne goes, hey, you know what? We had a good time playing at the Martinique Club. Do you want to join us? And Butch just goes, hell yeah. So he's in as a drummer that they can use sort of on the side. They actually go down to Miami in 1968, later in the year. They record a few tracks, which include a version of Bessie Smith's When Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. Greg is still writing music. In fact, at this point, he penned one of, I think, the key pieces of the Allman Brothers. He was lonely. He was feeling lost. And he started writing about a lost love. But the only thing he was hung up on was, what do I name? I have no name for this, this mysterious love of my life. And he's walking around a grocery store, and he hears a mother chasing her young daughter on the aisle saying, Melissa, Melissa, come back here. There you go. That's when Greg Allman wrote Melissa. All right. Which yeah, which is a beautiful song. I'm holding it, though. Holding it. Hang on. We'll get it, but not yet. So Greg was coming into his own as a vocalist, but the biggest problem was that, again, he was being sort of the centerpiece of this contract with Liberty. Dwayne was being pushed back. Not so good. Also, they disagreed on where to go. Greg says, let's keep going to L.A. Dwayne and Butch say, nah, we're in the Southeast. This is where we belong. And there's the matter of the contract. So Greg did something that I think is very interesting. He had escaped, as you remembered, graciously from Loudermilk's contract. 
who basically returned his letter and said, you don't owe me anything, it's done, and destroyed the contract, saying, I just want to see you guys succeed. But he realized that that's not going to happen a lot in the music business. Uh, and actually, the guy who promoted the Hourglass was very outspoken about it being about Greg. So what's going to happen next drives Dwayne nuts. Greg goes to the record and says, hey guys, I know you're, you basically want me here. Why don't I stay on with you guys and you release the others from the contract? Greg tells Dwayne this over the phone from L.A. So Dwayne has no idea this is going to happen. Uh, Bill McEwen, their promoter, was in the room when this happened. and He said he had never seen Dwayne so furious. In fact, it was a moment where he was convinced the brothers were going to stop speaking altogether. So Greg, in a way, sort of, you know, made a deal with the devil here. He's like, hey, you guys keep me under contract. Let them go. And they say, OK, because Greg was the one they wanted all along. So you can see the cracks are, are really starting to form here. So Dwayne stays in Daytona. Greg goes back to L.A. They kind of go back and forth. Greg's like, oh, Dwayne, you got to come out. Dwayne is pissed off. He's like, no, you know, I can't believe you would do this. So again, they're they're still talking, but it's it's a tender situation. Um, and he, Greg's talking to the other band members saying, hey, Butch, come out. Hey, you know, you guys should come out here. But nobody wants to. They're really ultimately siding with Dwayne. At this point, Dwayne's just kind of floating around Daytona. He doesn't know what to do. He feels out of place. The good thing is he's got a guitar and he is very good at playing it. So he could really pick up gigs wherever he wanted. He finally makes his way out of Daytona into Jacksonville, the famed Willow Branch Park. This was a park that would actually host an open jam session every Sunday. And musicians could arrive, just show up and play together. So it's there that he links up with a band from Tampa called The Second Coming. Now, The Second Coming did feature... Barry Oakley, as you mentioned before, as a bass player. It featured Dale Betts, who was a vocalist. And of course, I know, TJ, we're going to get to this. Dale's husband, the legendary Forrest Richard Betts, a.k.a. Dickey. So Dwayne and Dickey start talking, and they have a lot in common, like the blues influences. You know, Dickey was big on Freddie King and B.B. King and all those sort of old Chicago post-war blues artists. In fact, his original band was called the Blues Messengers, and it started, you'll like this, LD, right here in Atlanta. They actually started playing with a drummer they met at Piedmont Park. Oh, nice. Yeah. And if we're looking at the layout of the Allman Brothers as a whole, here's a fun fact. Fun fact. Mr. Raymond Barry Oakley, the third, he is a third, he's actually the only Northern-born member of the Almonds. Everyone else is from Florida, Tennessee, Mississippi, except for Barry. He's from Chicago. So he's sort of the odd man out in that regard. But as per usual, it's tough to keep a band together. Dwayne is extremely charismatic, but he's also very mercurial, so he gets a little tough to follow at times. So the members of the Hourglass, which are, you know, Sandlin Carr and Paul Hornsby, they're convinced this isn't going to work out. They see how things with Dwayne and Greg are going, so they kind of sneak off and do their own thing. Sandlin actually gets work as a session musician, brings Pete Carr with him. Paul Hornsby goes back to Alabama, and he actually meets up with a keyboardist who will come up later in the Owen Brothers sort of history line, and that's Chuck Lavelle. Um, and so basically the band is continuing to break up and Dane is Dwayne is pretty much left on his own. So he goes, all right, what can I do? I've got it, my guitar. We can't keep a band together. So he decides to be, course, sort of become a Ronin with his guitar. And he's like, well, my friend Eddie did it. Why don't I go to Muscle Shoals and I can be a studio guy? So kind of packs up, goes out to Muscle Shoals. Also another fun fact about Muscle Shoals. Fun fact about Muscle Shoals. Yay! They really rose to prominence, rose to prominence in the mid-60s. Obviously, they had artists coming in and out, but they were really big in the R&B scene. And what blew it wide open was a young man who was actually working as a hospital orderly who recorded When a Man Loves a Woman. Hey. Orderly with Percy Sledge. Hey, T, didn't your, yeah. dad, didn't your dad get drunk with Percy Sledge one time? Uh, Clarence Carter. Uh, okay. Oh, 
Clarence He's Carter is his bass player, allegedly. Mm, okay. <laughs> that is going to happen. But uh, yeah, Percy Sledge is largely to credit for Muscle Shoals becoming as big as it was. Oh, yeah. So, of course, uh, Dwayne had a little bit of experience there. They had just recorded those songs I mentioned with the Hourglass. He also knew Eddie Hinton, a couple of the engineers. And he had briefly run into Rick Hall, who was the owner of the studio, and his sort of the connection Atlantic Records he had was the A&R guy, Jerry Wexler. This was later debunked, but some thought that Dwayne was actually welcomed to Muscle Shoals with open arms. Like he walked in and Rick Hall was like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. You played so well. None of this is actually true. The name Dwayne Ullman had no weight at all at this point. So he basically shows up at the door in Muscle Shoals and gets work by refusing to leave. Dwayne comes in, he walks in, he goes up to Rick, who he had seen before, and he's like, hey, I'm here, I got my guitar, I can be your session guy. Rick's response is, and this is a quote here, I don't need session guys, I have guitar players running out of my ass around here. So Dwayne says, that's okay, you know, do you mind if I just camp out for a bit when the opportunity shows up? Um, why don't I show you what I can do? And Rick says, that's fine, you can stay, but you know I can't pay you, right? And Dwayne's like, yeah, that's fine. So Dwayne just hangs out. Yeah. He just sits in the studio, doesn't leave, shows up, hangs out, goes home, repeat. And then this is where, TJ, to your reference, the famed Clarence Carter comes into play. Uh Uh-huh. Who, he did Patches, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, Oh, gosh. And and slip away, yeah. It's one of the saddest songs ever put to tape. It's very much so. Stroking is less sad. Accurate. So Clarence Carter had actually started recording Muscle Shoals right around the time Percy Sledge did, so that when they were blowing up, especially the Fame Studio in particular. Now, he had recorded a single, The Road of Love, which didn't do all that well, especially by Clarence Carter standards. So he thought, I'm going to come back, I'm going to redo this and see how it goes. It was included with another single that they had called Too Weak to Fight, and this was all recorded towards the fall of 1968. And this is the first time a backing guitarist named Dwayne Allman would appear on an album for Muscle Shoals. So again, all his waiting around just paid off. Clarence Carter shows up. Basically, Rick Hall goes, yep, you're here. Give it a go. And the rest is history. So Dwayne actually set up in the studio and he brought out his Coridison medicine bottle, put it on his finger, and he starts playing slide guitar. Rick Hall says, on that day, we were making demos and he had his bottleneck. I had never seen many bottleneck players. I knew the big guys, Muddy Waters and the Porch Blues guys. But when Dwayne played the bottleneck guitar, you better put plugs in your ears because he would rattle the shingles. Even more impressed was Clarence Carter. And so they do their songs. And the story is that the minute Carter gets out of the studio, he goes to the airport. He gets his agent, Alan Walden, on the phone, who was a promoter for another subject we covered, LD, Otis Redding. Uh, Yeah, we know that guy. I don't remember when we covered Otis Redding, but I feel like we did. But we did, yeah. Did we? Otis Redding, I think we'll have to go back to our own discography, but he could be a good topic. But I think he was, was early. By I think I want to say y'all, before Will and I joined, I think he yeah. maybe did Otis. Yeah, man, let's see. And, yeah. my, and uh, also, allegedly, my dad went to his funeral. Oh, wow. No joke. Wow. So Clarence Carter made a point to call his promoter from the airport and he said, Good God, you got to hear this. Rick Hall has one of the most incredible guitar players I've ever heard. So you get an endorsement. From Clarence Carter, that's not too bad. So, of course, Dwayne becomes more of a top pick as time goes on. That definitely boosted his stats at the recording studio. And that Road to Love was, as I mentioned, the first commercially released recording to feature Dwayne Allman playing Slide. Again, up to this point, he played it live. He'd done it on some demos that had been kicked around and shared with industry people. But this is the first time 
that Dwayne Allman was commercially released as slide guitar player. Which brings me to a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. This may not come as a shock to either of you because I've never mentioned it in this episode or the series, but you know Dwayne could not read music? It doesn't shock me. Yeah. I think you mentioned it in part one. He he couldn't read it at that point, but he, so right. he just never learned. He just never learned. He played by uh, ear. I would, you know, it it is stunning how many all time greats couldn't read music. It is. It's completely great. Eddie Van Halen. I think right? this day, Paul McCartney can't read music. Van Halen was another one, right? Uh, Eddie Van Halen never mm-hmm. learned to read music. Yeah. So. so he would play by ear. They would give him like a musical chart to play, and he'd kind of be like, "Yeah, yeah, okay." But he'd spend his whole time listening to the other band members. So when it was time for him to go, he just went off what he heard, which is pretty amazing. But Dwayne would kind of keep an ace up his sleeve as he was always practicing music. As we mentioned earlier, he would, you know, listen to a record over and over, just keep playing and playing and playing. So oftentimes when a session would get kind of on the lulls, he would step up and go, hey, why don't we play insert song here that he already knew so they could give him a chart and he wouldn't even have to pretend to read it. He could just know the song. And Dwayne was always determined to be the best. He would play his heart out every single take. And then he would meet everybody on the level afterward. And he would say, how'd you like it? I think I can do it better. And then they'd say, okay. And he'd play it, and according to Rick Hall, it was always better. <laughs> the funny thing about Dwayne is he sort of stuck out among the studio. At this point, a lot of people in the studio did dress up. They wore suits, nice clothing. Dwayne was described as, quote, seeing a Hell's Angel at a PTA meeting. They were in the middle of the Deep South, and Dwayne was full-on hippie. He had the long hair, the mutton chops. He would wear the bell-bottom jeans and these bright flowered shirts. And basically, he had a bunch of guys in suits. That's that's going to stand out a little bit. Hey, Will, I'm extremely happy to interrupt you so we can make money. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we're back. That's great. I love money, and I love talking about Dwayne Ullman. So let's get back to it. Hey, uh, really quick. We we didn't cover Otis Redding. At we least did I- not. I, I don't I don't think we did. I just looked at our it's our, there? our, our oh. list and uh I mean it could have been done and for some reason it goes directly from October to December. So mm-hmm. I, I can't remember if we make any episodes that time or if they just didn't show up. So I don't know. But um but apparently no, we did not cover Otis Redding. Everyone wants to talk about Otis, let us know. And like most things in Dwayne's life the major incidents are going to be a bit haphazard. Like we said, there's some weird coincidences throughout his whole life, and this is just another one. Now, I mentioned Jerry Wexler earlier, who was close with Rick Hall, and Jerry worked for Atlantic. Now, at that time, Atlantic represented a lot of heavy hitter R&B artists. One of the most prominent was Wicked Wilson Pickett. Wicked Pickett. Wicked Pickett, yeah. Wicked Wilson actually had done a lot of work at Stack Studios, which is up in Tennessee, I believe. Memphis, Memphis. I think. Yeah, near Memphis. And for one reason or another, Wexler has a falling out with the guy who owns that studio. And one thing leads to another. And basically, he tells Wilson Pickett, you know, sorry, no more. You can't record here. 
I don't have all the details on this. And again, both sides give very different accounts. So what really happened is not entirely sure. But what we do know is that Wexler wanted to find Pickett another venue to record and do it quickly. So he knows Recall, gets him on the phone and says, hey, you know, I'm going to send Wilson Pickett down. And Recall's like, oh, great. One problem. Didn't exactly say when it was going to be. So one day, knock at the door, Wilson Pickett standing there, ready to go. And Recall is just kind of like, Okay, and he looks around the studio, and who happens to be hanging out there? Dwayne Ullman. So he's like, great, come on in. You know, they get set up, and this whole time, Hall is sweating because he says, I had no idea what we were going to do. Nobody told him anything. In fact, Jerry Wexler had called probably a couple days prior to say, hey, I'm not going to be able to be there. You know, good luck. And didn't really tell him when exactly Wilson Pickett's showing up, which is kind of funny. So they're kind of sitting there staring at each other. Suddenly, Dwayne goes, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we do Hey Jude? Well, it was universally thought as the worst idea anyone could ever have. And you hate that song. I hate it for a good reason. <laughs> the company I used to work for had an after hours pager where it was a digitized version of Hey Jude. So I get a little post-traumatic stress disorder when I do hear that song. Plus it goes on for days. It does. They didn't know how to end the song. Clearly not. There's a lot of na-na-nas. Na-na-na-na. So everyone's like, we can't do that. Because again, the song goes, seriously, they point out the fact that the song goes on forever. But then Recall steps in and he says, you know, the Beatles did this song, right, Dwayne? And Dwayne's like, yeah. And he's like, they're the number one band in the world. That single is number one. And Dwayne looked at him and just smiled and said, that's why we should do it. So everyone's looking, kind of deciding who's going to make this call. Now, again, Jerry Wexler is off in New York. He's not available. So everyone looks at Recall. Now, Rick Hall is thinking, okay, I don't know what Dwayne is doing, but I get a feeling he's got a plan. So he says, let's do it. So Dwayne says, let me show you what I got. And this is one of those incidents where Dwayne stacked the deck. Of course he knew Hey Jude. He'd played it a million times. Picks up his guitar, starts kicking around. Wilson starts to get into it. They bring the rest of the guys in. And I'm just going to play this for you because I don't know if either of you have heard this or know it, but it is really something new. So let's take a listen to Wilson Pickett's. I'm, I'm very familiar and I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> so yeah. Please do play it. We will. This is, and don't worry, it's not seven minutes. Pickett cut it down to about four. Here's Hey Jude from the great Wilson Pickett, backed by the great Dwayne Allman from 1968. Let me down 
We're back. So, so Hell good. yeah. That was so good. That I know, was... isn't it? Oh, God, I could listen to that forever. God, the, the way, just the way Dwayne does what they call phrasing with his guitar is, is impeccable. It's just perfect. I thought it was pretty. Well, no, it's, it's one well, of those I mean, songs. It... It's like it, the songs that need to be like 13 minutes long are rarely 13 minutes long. But <laughs> you kind of wish they were. Yeah. Yeah, that was, God, everything about that song. Love the horns. Pick it is just laying the vocals and Dwayne's guitar just shines man that is so awesome I love that I've got a Dwayne Allman box set actually mm. it's got a bunch of the his studio work from from Muscle Shoals so that's that's where I'd heard that before but yeah that's that is fantastic love it love it love it was that new for you LD it was I think nice. it was but I'm pleasantly surprised I really enjoyed that yeah it's so good that would be the ninth album for the Black panther there'll be 11 t- songs on the album but this is wait, of course the title track wait Dwayne almond is from wakanda <laughs> no wilson pickett was nicknamed the black panther wait yeah. wilson pickett was from wakanda i believe it <laughs> he can't, he's got sure magic he powers yeah he's amazing that was recorded in november of 68 it wouldn't be released until february of the following year which would actually be just two years before we lose Dwayne almond but enough melancholy for now. Now, the original Beatles version mentioned is much longer. This one's about four minutes. 
Hey Jude by Wilson Pickett would hit number 13 on the R&B charts and 23rd of the top 200 for Billboard. The album would be ranked 15th of the top soul albums ever. And this pop song just became something totally different in the hands of Wilson Pickett and Dwayne Allman. Um, and the thing is, Dwayne's pick was reviewed as nothing is genius in later years because when it hit the charts, the Beatles were kind of at the peak and they started to wane a bit, just enough for that song to kind of get pushed to the forefront. So people knew Hey Jude, but they weren't sick of Hey Jude. And then it kind of just took off from there, which is it, And it wasn't remarkable. uncommon at all at the time for people to, to remake and cover songs that were popular right that minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah. or, or very recently. Yeah, that actually would be a really good slap nuts was hmm. songs that were covered very, very closely to the original. Yeah, and this one is just... I like I how, love this how far apart was CCR's Proud Mary and I Can Tina's? That's a really good question. It couldn't wasn't long. Totally. Yeah. It couldn't. I mean, it was. They were very close together, but it wasn't uncommon for sometimes competing versions of one song to be on the charts at the same time. At that <laughs> back then, no kidding, no kidding. And apparently, after they got it in the bag, everyone was just jazzed in the studio. Rick Hall picks up the phone, calls Jerry Wexler. They blast the recording through the speakers right on Dwayne's guitar and hold the phone up to it. And then after it's done, brings it back, and Wexler just goes, "Who is that?" And Rick just says, his name's Dwayne Allman. So the guy who came in as nobody was now everybody in like all over the record business. The only problem was, again, this is an unfortunate trend for the Allmans. When they released the album, they wrote down David Allman, not Dwayne Jeez, Allman. Jeez, guys, come Whomp. on. Whomp, yep. So that was the initial LP release was David Allman, which they corrected in the later pressings. And it simply just says under the, the credits there, it says Dwayne Allman comma, guitars. That's it. Um, and this would actually lead Wilson Pickett to give Dwayne Allman his most famous moniker, Sky Dog. But he didn't call him Sky Dog. He actually called him first the hippie man from Florida, which then evolved <laughs> that into... That rolls off the tongue really nicely, yeah. though. Yeah, I was going to say, that is... That just works. That's super catchy. But he actually referred to him as Sky Man, because what he said was, when Dwayne Allman played, he soared, which is really cool. But they took that with Dwayne's other nickname, which was Dog, and hence Sky Dog. So that's how Dwayne got his famous nickname. Excellent. Obviously, they would... What's that? I said excellent. I know, it's cool. The two would go on to record more songs at Muscle Shoals. They did actually a version of Born to be Wild. They did My Own Style of Lovin'. And several times, you know, he would actually hang out with Wilson Pickett. There's actually an account of them when they invited a friend over who was recording in a local studio to back to Pickett's room, and they were just kind of hanging out, you know. And they put on the record, and apparently Dwayne and Wilson were both singing along with it, jumping on the bed like little kids. Ah. It was apparently, I would love to have seen that. That would be really funny. So Dwayne was now the guy for Fame Studios. He wasn't just some guy who walked in and wouldn't leave. He was the session guy, and everybody was looking to work with him. So Dwayne got a little cabin close enough to Muscle Shoals where he could live in seclusion, which he really wanted to do after living in the city. He didn't have a car, but someone would always give him a ride, and he just enjoyed basically going to the studio, play his guitar get a ride home at the end of the night, smoke some pot, play guitar, wash, rinse, repeat. I don't, actually... I don't, I don't actually think there was any washing going on in the <laughs> there 70s. There may not have been. There was not. 
And he was embracing his work as a studio musician. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I'm playing the work of other artists. There's there's nothing really for me to contribute. But Dwayne actually went on record as saying, any session is creative as you make it. And this is just funny, the way he always underplays like his role and everything. He's like, I made the suggestion that Wilson Pickett cut Hey Jude. He ended up using my arrangement and it worked out just fine. Yeah, yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, it did. He was glad he could express himself, and again, he didn't like being told what to do by the labels, but unfortunately, he was not free from that noose quite yet. If you can't guess, Dwayne wasn't much for the business side. So when he left the Hourglass, despite Greg's, you know, sacrifice there, he still owed them about $2,500, which today would be roughly nineteen grand. That's not that much. It's not, but it's, it's a pain when you're it's a musician and you're not yeah. making anything. Yeah, right. Yeah, no one would want to be like, here, now you owe $19,000. It's not fun. Yeah. Not great. I mean, like, we've heard worse numbers on this show. Oh, yeah. We've heard Jim Croce. I mean, my God, Tom Petty. Jeez. The list goes on. So by the end of the year in 1968, Dwayne actually, completely ignoring what he had done with Liberty Records, just agreed to sign with the studio, famous studios. He was like, hey, he signed a contract for publishing and production. Is that going to be a conflict later? You bet. But this whole time, Dwayne had his eyes on kind of working his own projects. He would bring this up to Rick Hall constantly in the studio and say, hey, you know, I want to do a solo album. I want to do a solo album. And Rick Hall would always ask the same question, which is, okay, great, Dwayne, but can you sing? And Dwayne would be like, yeah, I can sing. No, Dwayne, Dwayne Allman couldn't sing, guys. He's one of the best guitar players of all time for a reason. Anyone who heard our last episode, we played Dimples for you at the end. Dwayne was not a singer for a reason. He was, however, gaining a lot of traction with not only the studio system in general, but with the artists that were coming from Atlantic. As we mentioned, Wilson Pickett was just one of many, which included not only Wilson, but King Curtis and the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin. Ooh. Yeah. In fact, in January of 69, phone rings. And who is it? It's Jerry Wexler from New York. He is getting Aretha's newest album together, and he wants Dwayne Allman to play on it. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard this album, but this is a this is a great album. The, this Girl's in Love? No. It's, who, is, it's sorry, who was it? Will, yeah. I lost it for a second. Aretha. Oh, oh Aretha. Yeah. I've heard some of the songs, but not. Yeah. I've never listened to the whole album. Though. It's really covers. It's She does Let It Be, Son of a Preacher Man, Eleanor Rigby. It, it's a fun album. And of course, they want to bring Dwayne on. So Dwayne goes up to New York to record with Aretha Franklin. And all this time, while this is going on, Jerry Wexler's kind of working out some things. And again, this is where the coincidence in Dwayne's life doesn't go so well, if you can see where the signs are pointing here. Wexler was really big on what Muscle Shoals was doing, and he wanted to get another foothold in the Southeast. So he was working with Phil Walden, who was another famed promoter, we'll get into him shortly, about opening up his own studio space, sort of an offshoot of Muscle Shoals, and that would be in Macon, Georgia. File that one away for later. And sadly, there was, of course, the departure of, as we mentioned, Otis Redding. While we can't remember whether or not we covered him, he certainly is someone who deserves covering. He had died in a plane crash, I think, in 1966 or 67. Then we probably definitely didn't cover him because I can tell you just almost everyone that we've ever covered that has died in a plane crash, specifically because it's my nightmare. So I'm pretty sure we didn't cover him. Got it. But like I said, fair game. Happy Happy to look into that one. Yep. So in light of all this, Phil Walden's actually saying, you know, hey, you know, Dwayne, let's let's get a band together for you and your solo albums. And Dwayne's like, oh, great. I know all these guys. I can make these calls. And he's like, okay, that's great. You know, you can pull them who you want, but I've got someone you want to meet. And he described him as, I got this drummer over here in Macon who plays so weird, nobody knows if he's any good. Ah. Which is a great way to describe him. Who is he describing? None other than Mississippi-born jazz drummer, Johnny Lee Johnson, a.k.a. J-Mo, who went just by J-Mo. 
as the years went on. So he was sort of in Wald on Walden's shortlist of people to build up this making studio. So he's like, oh, hey, you get, got this drummer, you can meet him. And so Dwayne's like, yeah, okay. So by the time JMO arrives, he'd already heard of Dwayne Allman and how good he is. And the endorsements actually came from fellow musicians. One of my favorite ones came from Jackie Avery, who apparently talked to JMO before going about this guy. He's like, this Dwayne Allman guy I keep hearing about. He's a, quote, hippie with long reddish blonde hair. And Jackie, Jackie Avery says, no, no, I'm not kidding. I've never heard a white boy play like this. You gotta hear him. And then they said, they call him Skyman. So JMO's all psyched, goes up to meet him. Um, and they get set up in the studio. Now, the only problem here is they get along a little too well. And as a result, virtually nothing gets produced. It <laughs> actually brings JMO up. They talk a lot about their influences, jazz, blues, rock, R&B, and they start jamming a little bit and creating a sound that's totally different from anything else. Dwayne actually gets Barry Oakley on the phone, pulls him over, gets Johnny Sandler and Paul Hornsby back in the mix, again, the former Hourglass guys, but who is notably absent? His brother. So that was clearly a missing piece. And as time goes on, Dwayne really starts to miss his brother. And he's getting really worried about him. The sessions were not at all productive, unfortunately. Sometimes Dwayne would be in the studio talking for about 10 to 12 hours. They would get set up and then they'd pack up for the day and go home. Dwayne would do something like, yeah, the stars aren't right today. And then everyone just just call it quits. And yeah, of course, there were substances involved. Maybe we should give a warning for that. I don't know. Um, but Dwayne got high quite frequently. Uh, you know, he would smoke pot and he would take variants of speed and hallucinogenics. So did this contribute to the lack of productivity? Maybe, we don't know. But the other big thing was Dwayne singing. Dwayne could not sing. And they knew this, but they kind of humored him anyway because he was such a good guy and they wanted to help him out. And again, Greg is 3,000 miles away. We're going to cut to him later to see, you know, how he deals with the whole situation. So while this is all unfolding, he's got a great talent in Dwayne Allman, but he finds out about all these other obligations he has. You know, yes, he signed to fame, but he's also got this pending contract with Liberty. You know, at this point, it wasn't really public knowledge that he had been released from Dial Records, although Loudermilk graciously did so. And Rick Hall and Dwayne are starting to, to butt heads a little bit because Dwayne is very much, I want to record my own album. Rick Hall is like, okay, we'll get to recording and nothing is coming out of the session. So finally, Hall sort of backs out and basically says, hey, look, Dwayne, you do what you want here. You're welcome here but I'm out, you know, like there's nothing coming in this album. So sadly that first Dwayne All and Solo album would not come to fruition at that time. There are some recordings and TJ, you pointed this out on the box set for Dwayne, I believe it's called Anthology. Some of these do pop up, but an official album never materialized. So as much as Dwayne and JMO would play together, it unfortunately wouldn't hit recording until we get to the formation of the Allman Brothers, which folks we are going to do in our next episode, because by now you've met all the players, believe it or not, three episodes set up for what will be the formation of one of the most notable rock slash blues slash funk slash psychedelic bands of all time. But they're all there. You've met them all. And we'll put them in the melange next week. Sweet. All right. Yeah. So is that is that the episode? Is that it? You, you didn't. That's really... it. Yeah. We have a closing song, of course, but I figured we'd do a little little closing out of our hey. socials, and then I will treat you something in the very end. Two, two things real quick. One, because I do have this magical device through which I can access the collective knowledge of all mankind since the beginning of time. The CCR version of Proud Mary came out January of 69. The next version was actually by Solomon Burke in no April. Kidding. So three months later. Oh. Right on the heels. 
Huh. When when while CCRs was still on the charts, and then somebody called the Checkmates did it, and then Ike and Tina did it in 1970. So, I also scanned our entire discography, if you will. We did do Sam Cooke, and maybe that's who I had in my head. But yeah. No Otis Redding. Yeah, I we did, didn't do Otis. I did. I did think it was Sam Cooke that we were thinking of. Which, dude, that if you haven't listened to that series, that one's crazy. His death is insane. So it is bonkers. Yeah. Well. But anyway, just wanted to throw those two little things in. All right, so I guess I will give out our socials. Uh, if you think that we're doing a good job and, you know, the holidays are right around the corner, kids, and you're going to be getting a lot of new stuff, including Edmund Thea's new show, which is going to be posted next week on our Patreon for Ooh. our tier. So check that out. Mr. Will the Thrill helped her out with that first episode. So yeah. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and really good. And if you'd like to... Subscribe to that and uh, throw a coin to us. That would be amazing. You could do it at Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Don't bother with Twitter. You can check out our Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook, we're definitely on Facebook. Even Travis, my brother, who doesn't understand how technology works, is actually very active on Facebook. And I'm so proud of you, Travis. That's if so by cool. very active, you mean I post like one thing every other week. <laughs> I mean, that's still hey, amazing. It's, it's, it's awesome. But you can do that at on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. You can check out our TikTok at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And you can make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at PantheonPodcast.com, including the newest show that I am producing, which is called Getting Real with John and Beth. So if you like reality shows and all things pop culture, please make sure to check that out. Together with some really, I believe this week is going to be either Eric Neese or John Murray. I haven't looked at our schedule yet, but both of them were amazing interviews. So please make sure to check that out. Also, if you need any kind of masonry work and you're in the uh, Atlanta area, I am, I'm free for hire. So just let me know. And also I will put the link down in the description, but the holidays are right around the corner. So please make sure to check out my Etsy shop. I do movie-themed candles, and I do cosmetics as well. So I will take custom orders, so just make sure to check out my Etsy shop because I'm very proud of the stuff that I put in there. And I think that's about it. So, TJ, do you have anything that you would like to say to the audience? Indeed, I do. Bye, everybody. All right. Well, I would just like to say thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Please make sure to check out next week's episode I believe it's going to be my brother's birthday slap nuts. Uh, we just, uh, so, you know, Will gets an extra week to do his episode, which I yeah. think with his new system changeover, that would be a welcomed thing. So, yeah. uh, so please make sure to check us out next week. I hope you guys have a wonderful, safe Halloween. I know my brother's not dressing up for anything, but is Sully dressing up? She's going to be what for this, for our very She's, first one? Uh, ra uh, Raggedy Ann adorable i Very can't cool. i can't wait to see pictures yeah i'm gonna dress up like a corporate beetlejuice i will post pictures but will still hasn't figured out his costume which it's in like four days so we need to figure that out but just, you bought him a I, mullet just get him a wife beater oh like, i have a mullet and, there you go he needs and a, I have a smoking jacket. And a wife beater so wait, you, you may, want, maybe you want some a, boots you want to wear a mullet and a smoking jacket look i'm still working on it <laughs> All right, we will make sure to post pictures on our social media. So hockey just make jersey, sure kind of I'm telling you, he's either you either wear a hockey jersey, you wear a wife beater, or you dress like like one of 
roadie for Dom and Rio, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> How many people are going to do that? Open the door and be like, you're a roadie from Dom and Rio. I would love that. Oh I was trying to think, God. like, who would come, you know, because pretty much dude walking around in a wife beater that usually mullet, hockey player mullet, and like 80s, 90s country stars mullets. That's pretty much where they where they fall. Yeah. Okay. Right. We'll figure it out. We'll post pictures. But uh, in the meantime, you guys have a safe and wonderful Halloween spooky season. And we will see you on the next episode. I'm going to hand the reins back over to Will to close out the show. We love you all. Perfect. Thanks, LD. And we are going to close out with the song, Travis, you mentioned earlier, because I would be remiss if we didn't play it. This one actually rocketed to number three on the R&B charts when it was released in 1970. It comes from the late, great Aretha Franklin's just dynamite album, This Girl's in Love. It is Aretha Franklin, Dwayne Allman. Yes. Yep. The Wait. Good night, everybody.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 